Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse, Popeye, Woody Woodpecker, Baloo, Chihiro, Ariel, Steven Universe. All of these characters are, most basically, just drawings. I feel that this bears repeating. These characters are still images that have been put onto many, many pages or onto many, many frames in a computer animation program. They were never real. There were never even actors who were pretending to do the movements we see the illusion of on screen. And yet, they are characters. They have flaws and quirks. They seem alive. They flow in front of us. Their movement is poetic, and we feel sympathy for thousands and thousands of drawings that are made to seem like they are alive for an hour and a half, a new life born out of color and line instead of form and substance. It's beautiful, and it's a bit frightening. It shows us that the human capacity for sympathy, self-identification, and anthropomorphization is almost impossibly vast, and forces us to question just what a drawing, or a character, or a movie, or a life can be. But, as you know from listening to the last three episodes of this show, that's not how you would describe early animation. When James Stewart Blackton was scribbling on the chalkboard, there were no characters. In the beginning, there was only spectacle. Even last time, when we saw the amazingly fluid Little Nemo, we saw mostly a tech demo, a good one, and one that showed a little personality, but not a film that made an audience identify with an animated being on the screen and not one that left the audience feeling like they met someone, rather than seeing something. Windsor McKay's next film, Gertie the Dinosaur, would change that. And with it, animation would change to become just as much about character as it is about line drawing, and all of those characters I already mentioned, and more, can trace their lineage here, to their great matriarch, Gertie the first animated character. This is the 31st episode of the History of Film. My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. When we last left Winsor McKay, he was licking the minor wounds of his films Little Nemo and How a Mosquito Operates, both not doing as well as he expected. I'm sure that this was a severe disappointment, as both of these movies were, far and away, the most advanced animated films yet produced, Even in these discouraging circumstances, however, Windsor McKay never stopped believing in the potential of the art form he was developing. When McKay finished his second film, he stated that he believed that animation would go on to totally eclipse traditional drawing and painting. He said, and I quote, There will be a time when people gaze at paintings 
and ask why the objects in them remain rigid and stiff. They will demand action. And to meet this demand, the artist of that time will look to the motion picture for help, and the artists, working hand-in-hand with science, will evolve a new school of art that will revolutionize the entire field. That is a bold claim, to say the least. But maybe it was this vision of animation's ultimate destiny that gave McKay the desire to keep on trucking, setting aside the commercial failure of his other films and setting to work on making a movie that he hoped would find greater success and be broadly appealing. What he came up with is... Dinosaurs. Ah, dinosaurs, those mysterious animals beloved of children and paleontologists the world over. Surely a dinosaur would be so unique and interesting as to capture the hearts and minds of savvy vaudeville audiences. At least that was the hope. A hope that, after 5,000 drawings and untold hours of work, would be fulfilled when Windsor McKay first showed his movie, Gertie the Dinosaur, in 1914. Gertie the Dinosaur was a kind of movie that we haven't talked about much on this show so far because it hasn't come up that much. It is an interactive performance film. McKay animated Gertie so that the dinosaur would appear to interact with him when projected. The film was timed so that with some practice, McKay could appear to engage with his animated creation. When all put together, McKay could, let's say, issue her commands, ask questions, scold her, or feed her. At the same time, and over the course of just a few minutes, Gertie would consume boulders and whole trees, drain an entire lake just by drinking it, be distracted by sea monsters, and battle a woolly mammoth, all while being just a tad mischievous. While Gertie isn't much on story, she did, nevertheless, push the technological and narrative possibilities of animated film forward. As is common here on the history of film, let's talk about the technical innovations first, then describe how Gertie revolutionized character animation. First, and most obviously, Gertie the Dinosaur is the first drawn animated film we've seen so far, where the action doesn't take place against some kind of void, white or black. Instead, the action takes place on a line-drawing background of a lakeside trail with hills and caves in the distance. McKay hired some poor teenager to retrace the background for every single frame of the film, while he himself focused on the more difficult process of animating the dinosaur. This is the first example we have seen of the division of labor being used to create animated film. Animation was now much more like live-action filmmaking, in that it was no longer merely the narrow pursuit of one artist, but a collaborative endeavor. The inclusion of backgrounds here is much more than just a historical first, though. It also added to the illusion of depth that is an essential part of animation to this day. While Little Nemo did create the illusion of depth, it did so using only proportion, or how a character's size changes in comparison to the previous drawing of that character. Gertie adds a new tool for conveying this depth, perspective. 
made possible by a background. In her own film, Gertie moves relative to her constant background, making her size and movement feel more consistent and lifelike. Gertie lumbers towards the audience, seeming to grow in natural and predictable ways as she walks up a trail, which also appears wider in the foreground than it does in the background. The presence of the background provides a real-feeling space for the action to be in, thus making it seem more real. We get the feeling like we're looking at this dinosaur through some sort of strange, line-drawn camera. Next on the innovation list is a huge one. Gertie the Dinosaur is the first animated film of all time to use a production technique called keyframes. I cannot overemphasize what a big deal this is. To best understand them, let's begin with an example. Imagine a scene in which an animated character picks up a jug and throws it over a period of, let's say, 8 seconds. He struggles to pick up a heavy jug, heaves it back over his head, and his arms snap forward, propelling the jug off of the screen into the face of some hapless bystander. If the artist animated every frame of film to bring the scene to life, that would be... Okay, 8 times 20 is 160 plus 8 times 4. 194 drawings to make that 8 seconds of action. That's a lot of drawing, with a huge potential for aspects of the image to drift or lose focus if drawn in straight sequence. It's also a practical guarantee of boredom from the extreme tedium of drawing so many similar drawings one after another. Animating with keyframes alleviates both of these issues simply by changing the order that the artist must draw the images that will be seen on screen. Using this technique, the animator will draw only key moments of the sequence to convey the essential aspects of the motion in a few still images. This means instead of creating the action we described in 194 drawings, she may only do, let's say, 30. 15 of the characters struggling with the jar, 10 of him pulling it back, and 5 of him throwing it forward. I'm just making this number up, by the way. I have no clue how many keyframes actual animators would use for this. Then, later, the animator would go back and add the remaining 164 drawings to the sequence, using the 30 keyframes to make sure that her art remains consistent, and allowing her to work on whatever tiny chunk of the film she wants or needs to at the time. In the decades to come, Animating in keyframes would further allow the division of labor in animated film, as lead artists could draw the keyframes of a specific character, while lowly and poorly paid animators known as in-betweeners could fill in the gaps. For better and for worse, it was a game-changer in the newly born field. Windsor McKay didn't call this technique keyframe animation. Rather, he, or other people at the time, called it the McKay split system. But whatever the name, keyframes ended up being yet another technical cornerstone for all of animation, and we see them for the first time here. We also see important examples of animation loops in this movie. Of course, we saw these last episode with the strange repeating movements on display in How a Mosquito Operates, but they're back and better here. A significant portion of the film is filled out by Gertie fidgeting back and forth on her feet. She does so in a manner that, while not exactly natural, has a certain amount of believability. 
Undoubtedly, this made the film much easier to draw, but I guess also that it gave Gertie something to do, apart from sitting still, when McKay was talking to her as part of his vaudeville show. I think that these animation loops provided visual interest while not being too distracting. The animation loops we see here in Gertie are more related to the animation loops that would become a necessity for the Flintstones or Scooby-Doo to function than the uncanny reversals we saw on McKay's previous work. Those, I think, have more to do with Chris Nolan's 2020 film Tenet than any low-budget animation classic, but I digress. Moving on from the purely technical advancements of the film, it's now time to talk about the single greatest artistic achievement of Gertie the Dinosaur, and that is, well, Gertie the Dinosaur. Gertie represents the beginning of what we now call character animation. One of the most amazing things about the film that we are discussing right now is that Gertie the Dinosaur feels alive, even though she's just a simple line drawing. She, like all of the great cartoon characters I mentioned in the introduction, has a personality and mannerisms and quirks and flaws. She gets angry and distracted, even though her overall demeanor is overwhelmingly lovable. She has all of the friendliness of an excited puppy and all the spunk of a mischievous child. Gertie is. She feels like she exists. She even breathes. McKay reportedly timed his own breathing to make sure that he got it right. That's huge. Last episode, we saw animation that moved in a believable way. We saw Little Nemo and his friends run around impressively. But today we see animation that acts more impressively, that acts like something we know and something we understand. Gertie the Dinosaur is a major evolutionary step for animation becoming alive. It was true with Emile Cole and with Little Nemo, but it's also true here. Because this cartoon wasn't so much an experiment in animation technology, and the people seeing it didn't enjoy it merely because it was novel to see a drawing move. This film was enjoyable because the character on screen was enjoyable. Gertie was your favorite cartoon character for all the people who saw her, and people adored her. At least most people. I've read that the publisher of McKay's newspaper comics, a little nobody footnote named, what was it, William Randolph Hearst, wasn't fond of McKay spending all of his time doing vaudeville animated movies instead of making comics for him. So I imagine he didn't like Gertie on principle. After all, without high-quality comics, all those newsies wouldn't have anything but weds to peddle in the street. No good for business. Wielding his vastly superior clout, Hearst forced a change in McKay's contract that made showing Gertie or any other animated shows financially untenable for McKay. Luckily for the upstart animator, there is another way that movies can make money rather than personally showing them to sold-out amphitheaters. 
the theatrical exhibition of animation as wide-release film. Enter William Fox. Yes, that fox. William Fox, the pioneering film producer whose effort helped make the movies into talkies and whose name was plastered on the second half of 20th Century Fox for almost a century, will be discussed in this show in later episodes. I'm planning an overview episode in which we cover the major American studios and the moguls that controlled them so that we can have some proper context for the business as it actually existed in the United States between 1920 and 1950. Until then, all you need to know, really, is that William Fox is here, he's producing movies, and that Windsor McKay and his faithful dinosaur Gertie got together with him to make said dinosaur a worldwide hit. Fox and McKay had to do very little to make Gertie the Dinosaur proper Nickelodeon fare. Mostly, what they did was slap on a familiar live-action opening involving a bet that the famous artist Windsor McKay couldn't create the 10,000 drawings necessary to make an animated dinosaur move. And with that the movie was shipped out, replacing McKay's commands with written intertitles. While I can't say exactly how well it did financially, I can say that, by all accounts, Gertie was a worldwide hit. She remained so. With Gertie's wide release, her potent influence, which would infuse itself into Betty Boop, Merry Melodies, Silly Symphonies, and Looney Tunes, was here to stay, and McKay would stay too, at least for a few more years, because, shock of shocks, good old Windsor McKay has one more groundbreaking animated film to produce, and a few more that are merely interesting before he leaves our story. In 1914, another American animator named Earl Hurd filed a patent for a new kind of animation process. Rather than follow McKay's footsteps of paying some kid to retrace backgrounds for every frame of animation, which was expensive, labor-intensive, and I'm sure dreadfully boring, Hurd devised a way to have potentially infinite animation frames sit on just one background. To accomplish this, a still background would be painted or drawn first, then the characters or objects that would change position in the animated film would be drawn or painted onto translucent sheets of celluloid, that primitive plastic we talked about all the way back in episode 3. When the image drawn on the translucent cell was set on the background image, they would combine to create a new image, with characters or objects seeming to appear seamlessly on top of the backdrop. Now animators could make thousands of animated cells, short for celluloid sheets, and place them on backgrounds that would only have to be made one time, allowing for more detailed environments and character movements than were possible if both had to be drawn together. This is a big deal, and yet another foundational piece of animation technology whose descendants live on in animation today. Thank you, Earl Hurd. I'm sorry this is likely the last time you will ever be mentioned here on The History of Film. You will be missed.
animation cells quickly revolutionized the business, and Winsor McKay was eager to add this technique to his repertoire. The first film he produced with this new cell animation method was another groundbreaking technical exhibition, The Sinking of the Lusitania. As much as I may be tempted to derail this episode into one that focuses on the history of the First World War, a pet passion of mine, I shall resist and give only a few sentences of context for this movie. In February of 1917, with the war to end all wars raging across Europe, a German submarine fired upon a British merchant vessel, sinking it. This ship, the Lusitania, was carrying weapons and war supplies across the Atlantic to Great Britain, making it a viable strategic target for the German Navy. It was also carrying U.S. and British civilians, more than a thousand of whom died in the attack, so sinking it ended up being a really bad PR move for Germany, whose image was already not the best in the tenuously neutral United States. When the news of the Lusitania's unfortunate end came back to the U.S., it brought with it widespread anger and anti-German sentiment, which would, eventually, be one factor that pushed the U.S. into the war against Germany and the Central Powers. But we're getting ahead of ourselves now, because the point of all of this is to say that, back in 1915, one of the Americans who was deeply upset and angered by the sinking of the Lusitania was none other than the preeminent animator, Windsor McKay. McKay decided to combine his considerable talent and expertise, as well as the new technology of animation cells, to make a pro-war film that would meticulously recreate the historic event in all of its terrible grandiosity. The sinking of the Lusitania would come out years later in July of 1918, more than a year after the U.S. entered the war and less than six months before it ended, but say la vie. So, Without further ado, let's give it a watch. The great animator, Windsor McKay, decides, in a brief live-action segment, to make a film all about the sinking of the Lusitania. We get a look at his research and the scope of the endeavor, as a title card explains that it would take a whopping 25,000 drawings to produce the film, the longest animated movie ever produced. We're told that the rolling ocean waves were animated first, and then are shown the Atlantic, gray, wide, and unpopulated. After that, we launch straight into the animated recreation of the sinking of the Lusitania. What the film really consists of is a series of pointed pro-war, extremely anti-German title cards, intercut with the Lusitania and the German submarine moving under the waves. It has slow-motion drawings of the ship sinking while passengers are tossed into the waves, and it also has some shots of the people who were killed or forced into lifeboats over the 15 minutes that it took the ship to sink. It is gorgeously illustrated, fully exhibiting the kind of mastery of perspective, proportion, angle, and line that we've come to expect from seeing, well, 
every other movie McKay has ever made. While it isn't what I would call fun, per se, well, fun at all, it is easily the most rigorously animated film we've yet seen. The animation here is so precise that it looks just a few steps away from live-action footage of a ship sinking, and it sets a high watermark for realism in animation that arguably still stands to this day. Watch it and try to think of any animated film you've ever seen that matches the technical quality of the animation seen here. My guess is that if you have, then it's been in a feature-length film made at least a decade after this, produced by a staff of tens of people, and made with a budget that would be the equivalent of millions or tens of millions of dollars today. Its like would not be seen in the United States till, in my limited personal experience, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and, I must remind you, it was made by one person. The superior artistic quality of the film, combined with its political propagandistic content, its impressive 12-minute runtime, and its special status as being likely the first nonfiction animated film ever made, makes The Sinking of the Lusitania one for the history books. How well it did in its own time financially? Well, that's hard to say. One properly excellent source I have access to says the Lusitania attracted, quote, widespread attention, but I don't have access to financial records related to the film. It must not have destroyed McKay's finances, though, because he made several more animated pictures after this one. These movies would include the impressive Dreams of the Rare Bit Fiend series and Bug Vaudeville, which are excellent and bear examination, but don't have the same innovative qualities as Lusitania or Gertie the Dinosaur. After 1921, McKay left the field of animation altogether, instead continuing his work on newspaper drawings. Windsor McKay contributed so much to the field of animation as it was just beginning to sprout that if he had patented his various ideas, like drawing on translucent paper or using cross marks and board holders to make animation more steady, he could have made untold amounts of cash. He never wanted that, though. Instead, he did quite the opposite. After revolutionizing his field, he refused to patent his processes, saying, quote, any idiot that wants to make a couple of thousand drawings for a couple of hundred feet of film is welcome to join the club. He flung the doors wide open for animation, and was perhaps just a bit disappointed with the result. American animation in the 1920s, after the era of Windsor McKay, increased in volume and popularity, but it would largely skew towards the silly, impossible, and light-hearted the market necessity to produce cartoons inexpensively and with regular intervals made McKay's mammoth, single-person, highly realistic style untenable for coming decades. This, along with cartoons being seen as largely an appetizer for the quote-unquote real movies that would play after them, would make animation, by his own estimation, less than what he dreamed the art form would become. We can see Windsor's own opinion from an off-quoted account of what one attendee at an animation conference in 1927 remembered when the great Windsor McKay arose to speak at the conference. He recalled McKay ending his remarks this way. He said, Animation should be an art. That's how I conceived it. But as I see what you fellows have done with it is make it into a trade. Not an art, but a trade. Bad luck. 
He sat down, and there was some scattered applause. We've seen plenty of people left behind by the industry they created, but not Windsor McKay. He left his new art form behind when it turned out that he created an industry. Windsor McKay died in Brooklyn in 1934, having laid the foundations for many of the most famous movies of all time. Years later, while speaking to Windsor McKay's child Robert, Walt Disney himself would gesture to his studios and say, Bob, all this should be your father's. In some way, it still all is. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The History of Film. Windsor McKay had such a crazy life that had I an infinite amount of time and resources, I can write a whole podcast just about him. I left out all kinds of biographical details because, you know, this is the history of film, not the history of every tiny detail about a single filmmaker. For example, McKay had spooky family drama, including a brother who he never mentioned who was institutionalized in one of those scary 19th century mental hospitals, and a sister he never told his children about. But my favorite fact that didn't make it into the show this week is actually from the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where the ship that makes its ill-fated trip through the Chocolate River is called the Wonkatania. If that is in the book, no doubt readers at the time would have gotten the message that this boat did not carry only good news. As it stands in the film, it is a link back to over a century ago, and one more strand in the web that connects all of cinema to itself and to real-world history. Animation is now in a place where I believe we can cover a lot of it when we do national cinemas going forward. So, next episode, it's back to Europe, where we'll see how French cinema is doing after World War I, and then make our way to Germany, and begin our who-knows-how-many-episode series talking about the worldwide beloved German Expressionism. You can visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, to view resources for this and other episodes. And if you'd like to contact me, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. I always love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening, and join me next episode for another exciting edition of the History of Film. <laughs>